cliffcentral.com. All right, all right, all right. It is um, uh, Thursday morning, which means the burning platform returns. And today, Pumi Mashiko and I will be joined by Gabriel Krause. I've just heard from Ethel Williams. He's not going to be able to join us anymore. The guy's been oh, all I'm over the team. I'm yeah. devastated uh, by that. I know. I'm kind of interested to speak to him as well. And he's a lot about I'm a little bit annoyed, uh, but we'll figure Did it out. Did you see the press conference from last week? Um, because no. there is now a Whistleblowers Association. Oh, really? Um, the, yeah, yeah, there is now. Well, a group of people who were whistleblowers, uh, primarily, <clears throat> sorry, primarily in the Zondo Commission. Remember last week I told you there were 300, 300 people that came and testified at the Zondo Commission. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of those people were whistleblowers, but obviously a lot more. Uh, I think more than 150 of them were, were implicated persons. And there are a lot of people from ESCOM, SAA, PRASA, across oh, yeah? the board, who came out and who spoke out, who spoke out not just at the Zondo Commission, but leading up to the Zondo Commission, all the various uh, legs that led up to the Zondo Commission. And a lot of them have been antagonized at work. Many of them have lost their jobs and can't, can't get can't work anywhere else, right? Because a lot of people, a lot of businesses do business with government. So they would rather have their business with government than have somebody with integrity or a proven track record of trying to stop the theft uh, work for them. And they had a, they, they, they had a press conference last week, Friday and at Con Hill, I think, or at, at, really. Yeah, yeah. Just talking about kind of how they felt about and one of the things that they've been agitating for is a bill to protect whistleblowers. Mm. There is yeah, they pay a, a lot of that- uh, they pay a lot of lip service to these people, and you know we need them to know that they can they'll be safe if they report wrongdoing, if- corruption. Before, and, and a lot of people, I mean, a lot of us, not the, in the news, not the, 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 the media, and a lot of us don't actually pay a lot of attention to the people who are whistleblowers, but I think it really did come to a head last year when, um, when, when the lady from the, the, the Department of Health here in Gauteng, um, Dukaran, I think her last name was, was gunned down outside the, her child's school. She was one of the whistleblowers in the Department of Health around the PPE scandals. Wow. That Do you not remember the story? I don't remember that. No. Okay, I'm going to find her. Like, I mean, is it, is it something that came up on the show? Because that sounds like something I should know about. And I, I, you've just told me information that either I can't remember or I, I've been completely ignorant of. So i got to get my shit together. All right, let me, in, uh, in the meantime, while Pumi's looking that up, let me welcome uh, an old friend of the show and someone who's been on before. By the way, I don't mean old as in he's old. He just has, he happens to have a Jesus beard. Babita. Babita Diokara. Oh, that was her, no, her me- name. I remember Babita. Okay, no, in, I do know that story. I completely. And she was the, the chief financial director and she blew the whistle on right. a lot of the PPE scandals. Right. 
Uh, last well, last week, there was an article about Temba Maseko. He was one of the people named in um, who was a whistleblower and who'd resisted a lot of the looting. Uh, right. He actually lost his job and was replaced by Jimmy Manya at GCIS because he mm-hmm. wouldn't give the contract to to uh, what was the newspaper, the the Gupta newspaper. He wouldn't put oh, the new age. support. He wouldn't support the new age, and so he lost his job and. In the report, in the Zondo report, it tells of how while he lost his job and was packing his office, Jimmy Manya was actually waiting in the basement to come and take the... <laughs> oh, my God. Unbelievable, <laughs> right? He, his well, house was broken into last week. Um, so he's feeling particularly unsafe. And he's just got a new job. He is now teaching. He's the head of um, executive uh, at Wits Business School, I think. Wow. Okay. Well, here's Gabriel Krauser, someone who's a returning champion to the uh, burning platform. And he is, of course, a writer and analyst at the Institute of Race Relations, a regular co-host on the Daily Friend podcast, which we uh, play out here on cliffcentral.com too. So nice to see you, Gabriel. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Gareth. How's it for me? I'm very happy to be here. Hello, Gabriel. Well, we haven't, we haven't seen you in the new year. So happy new year, even though it irritates some people to say it beyond like the seventh or the second or whenever their rules are. So mm-hmm. Gabriel, I've been, I've been watching what you've been doing and we'll, we'll get back to the state capture report in a moment because it's an area of some interest. And we were going to be joined this morning by Athel Williams. Unfortunately, he's had to drop out at the last minute, but Gabriel, you've been writing some very interesting stuff. And I see that you are now petitioning to have the national coronavirus command council shut down. And mothballed because what do we really need it for you know in the light of people uh, in places like the uk with boris johnson saying they're going to get rid of all the lockdown and and coronavirus rules everybody's back to normal there are obviously other countries that have opened up south africa has largely been opened up since kind of april 2020 <laughs> if we're honest <laughs> you know and certainly in some parts of the country no one's paid any attention to any of these rules at all especially in townships uh, especially in places where you don't have Karens living next door to you. Nobody's really been listening to any of these rules, but we're still walking around with masks. Um, I flew down to Cape Town yesterday and someone said to me, and it needs to cover your nose and your mouth. So I had to pull it up. But what are these guys doing? And I mentioned to Pumi earlier, uh, we haven't seen uh, the star attraction of the NCCC. That's Nkwasa uh, Sanat Laminizuma, a woman who we were uh, all worried, can, you know, wielded this huge amount of influence and power at the beginning of lockdowns, at the beginning of all these rules being made. Uh, we haven't seen or heard from her in months. What's going on over there? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I went to her office uh, on Friday last week to deliver the petition, uh, which uh-huh. had, just so we're clear, three basic demands in the state of disaster. Mm-hmm. disband the coronavirus command council and and fix the disaster management act which is the piece of law uh which basically has a terrible loophole that allows parliament's power to be stolen by a branch of the executive uh without parliament having any ability to take it back or any oversight or scrutiny so long as we stay in a state of disaster so those are the three hmm. things we want uh and we went to her office and I'll I'll share a brief anecdote before getting into the heavy stuff which was that <laughs> We were so we're delivering these petitions, and we'd just been to the union buildings uh, to deliver the petitions to the presidency. 
yeah. where which is something I've done before with other petitions, and these petitions work. I mean, we've done it. I've done it three or four times, and pretty much every time we've gotten what we wanted. Uh, public mm-hmm. pressure does work when citizens sign up; it works. Um, anyway, this time was very different because we couldn't get hold of the presidency's delegates to come and collect the signatures uh, or the memorandum. And the explanation given by the police officer was that, you know, it's Friday, it's close to lunchtime, and we've just had so much holiday that no no one can really be expected to still be in the office. (laughs) So so I phoned and then arranged to meet someone on Saturday, and and that turned out to be a nightmare that didn't come. Anyway, so then we went from there to Nkosazan at Lamini Zuma's office. And there it was much more professional. Lamini Zuma was not around. Um, uh, but uh, one of her de- two of her delegates came down to collect the stuff in the foyer. Okay. We had a nice discussion. It was very formal and very, very strict and very formal. And then just as they were leaving, I said, guys, happy weekend. And I said, happy weekend to you too. You know, it's going to be a very nice weekend if Klamini Zuma just cancels the state of disaster and lets us be free again. And they went, yeah. <laughs> and then they caught themselves and they said, no, 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 no. And then they ran away. So there was a little human touch there. Uh, which, which I was very fond of, but well, we, I we, mean, we sometimes, I mean, we do sometimes forget that the, the people in charge are not automatons. They actually, you know, and I wrote a, I wrote an article and I think it was probably May or June of 2020 when we were in our peak of frustration over all this stuff saying, you know what, you don't hate the, hate the player, hate the game in this case. Um, of course, many people got very personal with her about the cigarette bans and the alcohol bans and everything else. But we do have to remember that these are just people, and sometimes they're acting nefariously and dangerously, but sometimes they're also acting in, in the interests of what they think the society needs and what they believe their powers enta- entitle them to do. I'm curious about the last of those three things that you mentioned in your petition, um, and we can get back to the others in a second, because in America, a similar thing happened. We have very clear lines of responsibility. There's the legislature, which does certain things. There's the executive, which does others. And there's the judiciary, which does others. And if those lines are not respected, we have a bleed of authority across them. And sometimes that authority needs to be challenged because the last thing you want is rule by diktat, right? And of course, if it comes to an emergency or a disaster act, like the one that you're talking about being abused by one of those branches, ad infinitum, and they're not responsible to parliament anymore to make or break or start or end it, then we have serious problems. And I think actually Joe Biden just faced this exact problem in America where the OSHA mandate to have everyone vaccinated if you had a company with more than 100 employees was overturned by the Supreme Court in the United States. And they said, no, no, a government agency does not have, because it's not an elected body, does not have the right to impose such a mandate on the population and to ruin people's livelihoods or get in the way of their, their earning, which, of course, our government did too with the, some of their lockdown rules. It's important that we remember that these things are not permanent and you can't just usurp power like that. Mm-hmm. So surely they have to take these things seriously, Gabriel. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just to say something about the American case. Uh, so one of my favorite things to do is to listen to American uh, SCOTUS cases, Supreme Court cases, because they, they the like, they're the only guy, 
You're the only guy in the whole world who would listen to those, but okay. That's like a podcast, man. I find it very entertaining. Anyway, um, they had two on the same day on Friday last week. One was about the OSH Act, which you've just mentioned, uh, affecting about 100 100 million American employees. The other one was about basically hospitals, nursing homes, and can they put a mandate there? Now, immediately after the two hearings were were delivered, um, a lot of the American media said, you know, this court has been tramped by conservative justices. They're just going to strike it down. They're not even going to look at the facts or the the arguments. Um, And that's not what came to be. They completely struck down the the Biden attempt to force 100 million people to get vaccinated, but they mm-hmm. upheld the requirement that you have vaccines if you if you want to be a doctor in a hospital that's sure. treating old people, for example. Um, so they were sensitive to those kinds of nuances that sometimes get overlooked, um, and I respect that. Uh, in South mm-hmm. Africa's case, there has been a terrible. Um, abrogation of parliamentary oversight or a bleeding, as you say, of the separation of powers. And this is, if you look in ancient Rome, this is how it happened. You had, a, you had an emergency and the, and the Senate said, okay, we're going to give emergency powers to a dictator, dictat, uh, who will rule by decree. And it's not going to be for long. Uh, as soon as the problem's over, we're going to take the power back. And the problem didn't end for like many, many centuries And the same thing happened in Europe with the rise of pretty much every dictatorship in Europe because the norm had already initiated of parliamentary representation Mm -hmm. following on from feudal monarchy, but it was fresh. It was young, much like in South Africa. So people were – they found it easy to trade off a promise of security for proper constitutional norms. Well, I mean, what what are we sitting on now, 200 weeks to flatten the curve? I mean (laughs) – you know, it's, it's kind of it is time. Uh, so, so what do you what are your chances of success here? Extremely high. First and foremost, because the virological situation on the ground uh, is is so robust. So, I have been pushing. I pushed Discovery to disclose what its estimates were for the number of people that had been infected from January 2021, because they'd already done that in 2020, and they came out with 80 percent uh, last winter in the in the third wave. Um, the uh, Professor Shabir Mahdi, together with the SAMRC, has uh, finally produced one of the important seroprevalence studies in Gauteng mm-hmm. with about 10,000 people. And they found uh, of mature South Africans, 80% had been infected uh, by mm-hmm. about October last year. Let me hit you with a fun fact that you will not hear anywhere else. Uh, they found the odds ratio of previous infection amongst vaccinated and unvaccinated was 6 that means vaccinated people were six times more likely to have been infected than unvaccinated people. How's that, um, how does that work? <laughs> well, there's a couple of ways it could work. One way is that when people get vaccinated, they get far more chilled. Um, and so they're more likely to be infected. Uh, and that's okay for them because vaccines are really good at protecting against um, severe disease and hospitalization and death. Uh, sure. It's not so great for the argument that you should force people to vaccinate because that'll stop them from spreading the disease because none of the mm. vaccines are sterilizing and if people get right. vaccinated now they're six times more likely to go out and get infected. That's going to overwhelm the effect. The other possibility, um, and probably both factors are in play, is that uh, a lot of the people who got vaccinated had already been infected. And so those vaccines were kind of a little bit useless. So you had people, you know, the, the most 
active and dynamic members of society, sort of spokes in hubspoke uh, social networks, uh, would be very likely to to catch it in the first or second wave, and then they all again in the third, and uh, they they get vaccinated thereafter. That's not a terrible thing, just in terms of resource allocation. That's not the most efficient person to vaccinate. You really want to vaccinate people who've never been infected. Uh, but anyway, an odds ratio of six to one uh, is extremely high, quite surprising, and unsurprisingly not reported on because. It does raise questions and people don't like asking or answering interesting questions about the state of play. But the point is, biologic, sorry, if I can just finish the point. The point is that I gave a press conference um, and and had a report and wrote about this last year that the most likely scenario for the fourth wave would be that cases and deaths divorce. So you see cases spike again, maybe even faster than than in the third wave and the second wave and the first wave, okay. but the deaths are going to stay relatively flat. And I predicted that the most likely would be that deaths would stay around two per million population per day. That's exactly where they've peaked. Um, hmm. Now, I didn't do that because I'm a genius. I did that because partly I speak to epidemiologists and virologists in South Africa and around the world, Geneva, San Francisco, uh, London, and partly because it's just so obvious. Uh, with so many South Africans already infected, right. with a minority, a very important minority of South Africans vaccinated, we have put ourselves in a very robust position for dealing with variants. Um, which is then what happened, and and this is how we dealt with it. So virologically, not a state of disaster. As Shabir Madi points out, fewer people die in the last wave than in a regular flu season. So without it being a disaster, you can't extend the state of disaster. Got you. Pumi? So my question, though, is around the method um, that you go around. You know, you've put together a petition. I know somebody on the comments was also saying that they signed the petition. And I'm wondering the method between petition on the one side and the mm-hmm. AfriForum route of court. You know, so we just saw two days ago, I think AfriForum yeah. taking the government to court because of wanting to... Uh, Publish, publish metric results. metric results. You know, those two things, both of them are having a, a collision with government in a way um, to force a particular result. So what what your view is on either one of those and, and why you choose the petition route? So just to be clear, our attorneys have been corresponding with uh, Nkosa Zanakamini Zuma's department and with the presidency ever since uh, the the they basically tried to steal our elections last year. And we did go to court over that issue. We were the first to to make the argument that the science was not uh, saying what the Musineke report had said because we read what the scientists had actually said to that commission um, and to and our legal experts looked at what the Constitution says. Anyway, so in that instance, we had to go to court. There was no way around it. Um, and we won that and South Africans got to vote last year and it was in a trough just as it had been predicted and it was great. Um, I thought the results were a bit of a watershed moment in South African history. In this mm-hmm. instance, our lawyers kept corresponding to maintain an evidence trail, the cookie crumbs, leading to either a surprise, maybe we didn't think of something, and they give a rational argument for why this is a state of disaster, even though the deaths mm-hmm. are below or around two per million per day, which means it's a low price than many other things that are killing lots more South Africans. Uh, maybe there's something we didn't figure out. Or it's cookie crumbs leading to the heart of the irrationality. And then that can be taken to court if we need to go to court. So the court option is there. And Sarkalicha, led by Pete LaRue, uh, they have got an avenue for going to court. They just announced yesterday. I think that's good stuff. However, 
I think the petition and the public pressure option is far preferable for two reasons. Firstly, it's quicker and less expensive. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it is essentially democratic. I hoped when my friends and I were gathered online, uh, when coronavirus first struck us hard and we all had to bunker down, one of the things we talked about, the silver lining we were fishing for, was that South Africa would face this trauma together, that for the first time since apartheid, there would truly be a national horror. That an existential of, threat, yeah. An existential threat that, can, that we can learn something from. And the lesson I would most love us to learn from this is the value of our constitutional democracy. I think that if people switch on to the power of active citizenship, the, the meaning of holding their leaders to account and, and the effect of that pressure, I think, that's, I think that All right. doesn't just solve this problem, it solves future problems. So that's Let why me, I prefer that option, if we can do it that way. But it's going to end easy or hard. Either it'll end so the easy way, which is our way, or by court. So let me be cynical and, and, and pour water on your, on the flames of all this lovely democratic talk here. Yeah. What's the, what's the fucking point? I mean, the, the national state of disaster is, it's, it's just, it's, it's part of kind of the environment now. The curfew's over. There's no liquor ban, as far as I can tell. The only thing really left is the mask mandate in public spaces. But what, what other things is the national, apart from academic things and things that would interest you who listen to Supreme Court, you know, um, <laughs> rulings. But what what else is it doing in the life of an average South African that is deleterious to their freedom? At the moment, the dragon has retreated back into its lair. Um, and you can just see a few plumes of smoke uh, emanating from the mouth cave. Yeah, so, the, cave so of the, mouth. the dragon is still there. We are still living in a village underneath a dragon. <laughs> that will spread its wings and pour flames upon our constitution uh, as soon as it is convenient. Uh, and and think about the kinds of issues that Nkosuzana Dlemini Zuma in particular and that the, the ANC in general have tried to push during uh, the reign of the command council. Um, <clears throat> Dlamini Zuma talked about this as being a moment for Cabral-esque class suicide. Uh, Ramaphosa said this is an opportunity to radically uh, transform the distribution of wealth. Now, the implement Ramaphosa also said, look how well the government has performed in terms of managing the pandemic. Uh, this is a this is a good pretext for rolling up the national health insurance, which basically means uh, hmm. nationalizing a whole bunch of of private health care, which will chase away the middle class and okay, drive down jobs. Hang further. on, hang on, Gabriel. Yeah. When, when he said We've all that, two million jobs. We've lost two million jobs. When he said all that, mismanagement. Gabriel, when he said all that, and when Nkosasana Dlaminizuma was still taking chances with this, that was when we were all still scared of coronavirus. And I think we were all right to be cautious in the beginning. We didn't know what was coming at us. We didn't know how many people we would lose. You know, we were especially worried because we're an immunocompromised country. I remember having these conversations, and you don't have to have the greatest memory in the world to just cast your mind back. And everybody was like, pray for Cyril. Do you remember, Pumi? Even, you know, you and I were saying, like, let's be careful here. And you're not the biggest Cyril fan in the world. But he was saying those things at that time. He couldn't get away with that now. In fact, we know that part of the reason that he gave up the curfew just, be just before New Year was he knew it would cost him enormously in terms of popularity points. And people in this country are now full. And you know what South Africans are like when they get full. They're not going to listen anymore. So he had, like Boris in, in the UK now, he has to abandon these things because it's costing him votes, 
costing him popularity, costing him public sentiment. They can't get away with that stuff. Now, that dragon is pretty much dead. I hear you that we need to actually make sure it's dead. I don't think it's an issue. For me, you're shaking your head. I absolutely am. You see, so for, for me, I think one of the things that we must be very wary of is, one, the separating of Nkosa Zanadlamini Zuma and the command council from Cyril Ramaphosa and the ANC. Mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is it's just faces of the same beast. And what we're looking at is we're, we're literally staring down a, 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 an abyss that leads to a dictatorship because what they what, what he has available to him besides the state resource and the fact that they can just make pronouncements uh, what Cyril has available to him is he has really a mighty weapon in that in that we we're looking at it in two ways we're kind of looking at it and saying yeah it's because Zuma so he can hide behind all of that stuff and he can make pronouncements that can very quickly escalate into a bad situation and i think the the one thing that we're seeing in south africa today is besides the polarized nature of our politics is we're also seeing a bit of a bullying politician coming into play. And and that, for me, is what we should be very wary of. There's really no reason why we still have the state of disaster. Yeah, if there's a moment of irrationality, if you allow government some irrational pretext, it will be taken advantage of. This is the nature of power. If you say to someone, okay, you've got all the power and you can rule by decree – because you're not doing it at the moment. So we don't mind that you've got the power because you're not using the power. You're a benign dictator. Right. <laughs> that is a recipe. You are inviting right. abuse. Well, I'm, 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 uh, listen, when, when Gabriel and Pumi are on the same side of an argument, I'm just going to shut up because I think you two make a very valid point. Nonetheless, it, it is something that I think most South Africans would support, the, the uh, petition that you handed in. Let's see what their response to it is, and, and let's see if we can wrap this thing up and get back to – correcting some of the mistakes and fixing some of the damage because some of it is going to be uh, irreversible. Some of it's, we're not going to recreate businesses that have failed. We're not going to be able to uh, re-engineer whole economies in places in this, in this country where it's been hit hard. Of course, we also had July last year, which kind of hit us at a very awkward time. Um, how, how are you seeing the landscape going forward, especially given the local elections, the local and municipal elections we had last year, I mean, what's your overall uh, outlook going ahead? And, and are, you, are you more optimistic or more pessimistic now than you were at the start of all of these lockdowns? I'm, I'm more optimistic. Uh, oh, wait, hold on. Not the start of the lockdowns. In, in mm. February 2020, I was extremely optimistic. Okay. I thought we were building good momentum. Brief anecdote. I was in uh, Ungeni. Uh, and I met Chris Pappas, uh, a DA politician who's become fairly well-known nationally uh, because he became the first mayor of Mgeni there in, in rural KZN, close to Harwick. Uh, and he speaks fluent Zulu and makes good speeches. Anyway, I was there sharing a stage with him and a couple of others. Uh, and we basically launched the first uh, protest against expropriation without compensation that was peaceful and street level. And I thought, this is fascinating. South Africans, again, are are making their voices heard about something that I consider to be an existential threat against the country. Um, And it 
and the and the general tenor around that moment, there were so many little crumbs that were lining up uh, in, in 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 a beautiful direction. I thought, in terms of progress for this country, us getting serious about our problems, getting over New Dawn Ramaphoria, and getting getting face to face with one another in in a helpful and productive way. Then came the lockdowns, and I got gloomier and gloomier and gloomier. Right now, my hope is restored. Uh, at the moment, I think that South Africa needs to become a robust democracy uh, in the standard political science sense of that term. That means a peaceful transition of power twice uh, under the new regime. So we've, we've had a peaceful transition of power, relatively speaking, uh, with the ANC uh, being voted in in, in a good fashion. Um, Establishing I think we need, changing the rules, we, need, yeah. we need the union buildings. Uh, we need a change of power. I think that'll be very healthy for South Africa. I think it'll be healthy for the ANC too, uh, but it'll be really, really healthy for South Africa. And I think at the moment, the opposition coalition is in the lead. I think it's for them to lose uh, that opportunity in 2024. Um, I think they can lose it. I think that there's a lot of pettiness. I think there's a lot of silliness. I think there are great temptations for them to lose their eye from the prize. Um, but at the moment, I think that South Africans uh, are, as uh, as actionists they like to say, gutful in their posters, um, are disgruntled, um, and I think that there are there's there's a sort of there's a there's a, an interesting menu of coalition opposition parties that South Africans can choose from, um, yeah. and and if they work together, I think that would put us in a good place. The gloomy scenario is this. Um, uh, uh, a dragon or whatever beast you want to think of is kind of at its most dangerous right towards the end when it's on its last legs. That's when it can get truly desperate. And when it's backed into a corner. Yeah. I mean, we, we've discussed this problems a couple of times. Do you, do you concur? I mean, are you feeling gloomy or or are you feeling optimistic just generally? And then we'll get into some specifics just now. We've got to talk talk about Julius going to restaurants in Midrand yesterday. I want to talk about that. Look, I think I, I I haven't shifted from my slightly pessimistic view. I will feel optimistic when I see more South Africans be involved. So whether it is in petitioning, whether it is in supporting organizations financially or with their time and knowledge that that counter the big story that is coming out of our government, I will then I will start to feel more uh, less pessimistic. I do not have a. Uh, I, I really don't believe our coalitions can can sustain, because I think that there are two things happening. So there, there are lots of power dynamics within the coalitions, and I think we only need to look at what happened in Swane, um and why those coalitions can be can go nowhere, right? I think what we are seeing in Johannesburg, what we are seeing in KZN, in parts of KZN, what we are seeing at Kokta last week, is we are seeing a very concerted effort from the ANC to be disruptive. Mm-hmm. So they have lost they've lost the power to do anything. And so they have gained negative control of these environments. That's why we see the scenes that we are seeing in the council voting chambers, right? I am very sad to see what is beginning to be a a cope-like disintegration at Action SA down down there in KZN. 
Yeah, with Makosi um, uh, Koza and, and uh, Herman Mashaba and the rest of them having a massive conflict, right? Which, which is a microcosm of what I mean in the coalitions being such, su- such power dynamics that cannot be wielded into a force that can really break the ANC's negative control. You know, if we, if we look at what, what happened down in PE, if we look at what happened in Tswane, the coalitions are, are always so precarious and they have their own power dynamics and everybody wants to be in charge and everybody wants to be the boss instead of fully focusing on working together towards breaking that dynamic. So I'm still a little bit pessimistic, guys. I don't know. I, th- I think yeah. what we need to see going into 2024 is we need to see a really strong new force coming into play. And we're seeing a lot of that beginning to, to coagulate. I mean, I think when I see and hear what's on the ground in the political spaces with various people and think tanks, what think tanks are doing, what new formations are doing. I think that it's going to be very exciting in 2024 and it's definitely going to be, but I'm not sure if we're going to have an easy uh, shift or change of power because what we, the, what we see in the, in the, in the chambers, what we see in the chambers is I'm telling you now is it's a concerted effort by the ANC coming from head office that says right. be disruptive. Yes. And of course, the same thing is true for the EFF, who, who really their only purpose is to be disruptive. But I mean, we've got to also take stock of some of the, the achievements of this time. We've, we've seen how resilient and how uh, reactive and, and, and positively reactive South Africans can be when, you know, the, the, the rubber hits the road, when, when we're actually faced with the kinds of things that we were faced with in July. People do react in a very impressive way and communities come together and suddenly we have people standing up for themselves and economies have survived the predations of very ridiculous and, and, and unnecessary laws from government side. We've seen the township economy booming during lockdowns and, and in fact surviving in places that you'd never have expected it to. Of course, the formal economy has taken a much bigger knock. And we've also seen things, I mean, Gabriel, you know, our, our big concern uh, for anyone who believes in, the right of an individual to, to own property, you know, this expropriation without compensation, it's, it's pretty much been a damp squib from, from the side of those who were proffering it. I know it's not over yet, but certainly there, there have been some victories there. So let's take some stock, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we, we've, mm. we, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a metabolism. A, mm. a, a body politic really is like an individual body. Uh, and you've got to learn to eat those wins uh, to get energy out of them to then go and strive mm. for the next one. At the moment, I feel like uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of the people I work with have been on, on the back foot and, and trying to hold the line, trying to hold the line against things getting worse, like with, with expropriation without compensation, like with more irrational lockdown measures and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, 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 and I feel like we are solidifying. I feel like there is a coalescence around common sense um, in, in a lot of different pockets of South Africa. Uh, but the next step is to go forward. And, and we're not there yet. I mean, I think that's where I agree with the pessimists. I mean, we still need uh, a, a stronger coalescence uh, with the expropriation bill on its way, with the land courts bill on its way, which would basically make hearsay evidence into real evidence. The expropriation bill would allow EWC through the back door. Um, those are those are major problems. <coughs> can I tell you very, my favorite word? Very, yeah, yeah, go on. Okay, here's my favorite win, um, which which no one has reported on. And and Gareth, I am a bit of a nerd, but this is why mm. it's useful to be a nerd. 
If you go to page 796 of the part one of the Raymond Zondo uh, special report, you will find something very interesting. Oh, wait, hang on. This is where Pumi has her copy right next to her. So you, you, two are, you two are both turbo nerds on the same subject here. All right, go ahead. What's on that page? Uh, a systemic analysis of state capture. So Zonda says, look, there are problems. Uh, and Athel Williams would have told you very important problems in the private sector. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, many people know very important problems in the public sector. My favorite character in this drama is Yake uh, Makwini, the SAA de facto procurement officer. Quinana. Who, Quinana, yeah. sorry. I had a little mm-hmm. backwards. Delect- <laughs> Didn't read that properly. Go on. Go on. Okay. But the characters, the personnel issues, that's one thing. A systemic analysis means, you know, if you keep the rules of the game the same, are you just going to get the same results even if you get new people in? Because good people are eventually going to be incentivized to become bad people or they're going to get replaced and outperformed by people that are bad. Mm -hmm. Zondo does a systemic analysis and he finds that the root of the problem uh, in the law is that the law is very confusing around procurement. Uh, it's so confusing that uh, he quotes someone as saying 50% of the times that the law is being broken, it's because it's so confusing. You're not even trying to do the wrong thing. You're trying to do the right thing, but you don't know what the right thing is. And that creates a foggy, opaque scenario where the other 50% are just stealing. They're eating the money, but they know it's hard to find them because it's also opaque. So then the next question is, why is the law so confusing? And he goes to section 217 of the Constitution, which is just about the last second of the Constitution. So we write at the end of the Constitution, right at the end of the Zonda Report. Section 217 says two things. Number one, you've got to get the best value for money when you're spending the people's money. Right. Best bang for your buck. Number two, it says you can't let that get in the way of racial transformation or transformation in terms of gender or sexual preference and so on. So Zondo says, here's the problem. This will inevitably lead to some scenarios where you're asking yourself, what's more important? Should we be, in simple terms, going for the business that is offering the cheapest, best, most reliable goods the fastest? Or should we be going for a business that has, uh, frankly, more uh, people of color or black people or whatever the preferred group is? And Zonda says, in those situations, the law should be able to help you out. But the law doesn't help you out because some of the laws say you must go for value for money and some of the laws say Mm -hmm. you must go for for transformation. And uh, this is a huge part of what creates that elbow room, which is then taken advantage of uh, by people who who want to go and and, uh, do nefarious things. So he says, what's the solution to this? He says, this is an awkward situation. What are we going to do? He says, the solution is that if only one was considered primary, so that you have to meet that, and then the second is an afterthought, in case there are two that are equal in terms of that first thing, then what do you do? And then he says, which one should it be? He says, the primary thing must be value for money. And it's not just his opinion. It's also the plain English language of the Constitution. So... This is basically the short answer is he says the systemic problem here is the way that BEE works in this country. It should be that if two companies are offering exactly the same product at the same time at the same price, then the government can choose the black company. But if Whitey is offering it for five rand less, you're spending the people's money. So you've got to spend that in the best fashion because that's for all of us. 
um, and we are all citizens. Uh, and uh, and that's the way to go about it. And it's so a this fascinating is, this is... moment. Check out page 796. All right. <laughs> and, and this is, you know where it would have been spectacular to be able to speak with Ethel, who was inside. Now, again, being a bit of a nerd, right? So a couple of years ago, just before the Zondo Commission started, that Bain strategy, that entire actual strategy document that is at the heart of was circulating, and I got a copy of it, and I read the strategy because it's, you know, we work in strategy. And there are some names in there of people that I actually know and people who have performed well in private sector and were poached and put into public sector for right. nefarious reasons. And, and just talking about the how do you spend the best, how do you spend the money in the best service of the people, right? So that base strategy seems to answer that question. It says, this is how we're going to do it. We're, we're, we're going to ensure that there's transformation, but here are these really great people that we're going to put into these environments and they will be able to cascade. <laughs> so it looks like that up front. And this is where, and we've spoken about this on the show, Gareth, I've said to you that to be corrupted, <clears throat> there needs to be a corruptor. So for public service to be as corrupted as it is, is because they work in concert with the private sector that is as corrupt as, as they are. Right. And, right. and this is, this is actually also the, the place where those two things meet is in those moments where something looks like it is for the good. Bane for all intents and purposes. And we've had this with McKinsey. We've had this with Deloitte. We've had it, you know, in lots of various sectors and nothing has happened. Nothing has happened with those companies. Nothing has happened with, um, with the principals in those companies. We had Lord Hain on the show also talking about the fact that the banks are just as complicit. How do you get this mm. money out of the country? Right. How do you? Right. And, and so the, the systemic nature of the problem is not to be discounted because some of these things are wolves in sheep's clothing. And, and that's where you kind it of. It would be, it would be great to have some clarity on this. And we've also seen a lot of ridiculous proposals from government, which are, which are clothed in like a sense of equity, you know, like let's, let's create more opportunities for black business. That's what it looks like from the outside. But when you actually go into it, it's all about caters cleaning the cream off the top it's got nothing to do with ordinary black people having chances in an economy which has largely excluded them prior to 1994 which i think everybody accepts as a fact no one's sitting around going yeah well business was easy for you know black business owners before 1994 or even after for a long time but now we're sitting here with this government who are really they're banging that drum because they think it's going to get them points at the at the polls but i don't think that's the case anymore and most people who look at it go well Sure, if you are, uh, you know, one of the ANCs in a circle, you're going to have done very well over the last couple of years, uh, like our president has. But for the rest of us, we're sitting around and, uh, you know, we're, we're waiting for some opportunity here, but there's certainly none being provided to us by legislation. And all that that legislation has done is created such enormous quantities of red tape for a, a small business owner a person who wants to start a small business, Pumi, you and I both feel this pain a lot, that it's, it's made it very difficult for us to just get on with the business where I wouldn't have any problem trading with anybody provided they were giving me value. Neither would the government, frankly. They've made it so complex that now 
the only people who make money are the lawyers. Exactly. So I, I, I do think that I think common sense South Africans get this, and uh, it's, it takes a while to connect the dots. The ANC has delivered amazing services to a lot of South Africans. The fact that 29 million South Africans are now on social grants is is Oof. a is a is a profound problem, um, because a lot of those the most of those people want to get off that grant. Sure. As soon as they can and get a job. But there's always going to be some section that feels worried. Uh, so they tether to the grant. Okay, if I lose the party, mm-hmm. the pro- ANC keeps saying at, at uh, election time, you know, if you vote the opposition and you're not going to get your grants. That's a, <clears throat> it's not true, but it is a scare line. But, but I think the yeah. point is that the rules that work are simple enough to or- for ordinary people to understand and statute books that are effective, uh, are, are, Keep it simple so that the lawyers yeah. aren't making the money and so that the police can enforce the law and so that contracts can be upheld. Uh, and, and in that way, you have the most voluntary exchange. Then you get creativity we, flourishing. We, we have, um, like, looking at that clock, Gareth, and I just want to do a, a, a small little ad. I don't even know who these people are that are behind this Twitter, but talking about connecting the dots, Gabriel, and if you want to find a bite-sized way of consuming, if you don't want to read the 800 odd pages of the Zondo report, mm-hmm. but want to see the key names and keywords, I saw in the in the message of somebody saying, who cares what these names are? It's important to know who these players are because these are the people, you know, earlier we were talking about shunning people in our yes. communities. Absolutely. For, you have to know these names. Yeah. You have to know these names so that so that you can do your part in making them as uncomfortable as possible as they sit in their restaurants, as right, they drive correct. by, as they live next door to you. Yes. There is, on Twitter, there's a, there's a Twitter, it's called Super Linear ZA. And they ha- they've done this like incredible little diagram where they've used a natural language processing and an algorithm. They've taken in all of the, the key names in the report and they've connected the dots. So you can see, oh, I don't know if I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you on my little thing here, you know, so you can see clusters. Oh, wow. you, get like a, you get like mm. a cloud. Yeah. It's a, mm. it's a word cloud of mm. the companies and the names and who was where and who moved where and how all of these various things play together. It is an incredibly fascinating thing. Go and well, that's, it a, that's a that's good one. Ad. Thanks, Pumina. No, that's good. Uh, James, James Bates says many private companies understand that in order to get business, corruption is at the top of the tender. Um, like it or not, those are the rules of engagement. You see, I think this to Gabriel's point earlier is, is part of the problem is that you're almost incentivized to do horrible things like fronting, to lie, to create bullshit shell companies, uh, to put your tea lady on the, 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 the list of directors without her even knowing she's on it. This is what people do when you make rules that are impossible to follow sometimes. And I'm, I'm not making excuses for people who've done these things. You break the law, then you must take whatever consequences come after that. And the consequences might be very dire. But mm, if you incentivize seen, people... We've seen yeah. no consequences. I've, I'm counting. I'm, I'm running a tally. Today we are on day 17 since the report came out. And how and, many... How yeah. many cases? How yeah. many cases has Shamila Patohi? Listen, let's not start the year by no. talking about her again, please. I am <laughs> listen here. I am I'm keeping a running tally. I, I really am right. because I would me, love me, to see what it looks like when she like heaves herself, her mighty self, mm-hmm. into kind of cranks herself into action. Seventeen if, days uh, later, here we are. If, Zero. If I can just say so so again to do the the good news and the gloomy side. So the good news is that the most important person in the judiciary has 
has articulated the systemic analysis that Zondo is like Isidingo, Igoli, uh, Days of Our Lives, all wrapped into one. He's been living in our TV uh, rooms uh, across South Africa for three years. No one can pretend he doesn't have authority. He's not important. And this is what mm-hmm. he has said. Uh, even though it's been ignored for two weeks or 17 days, as you point out, uh, it will percolate through. And that's encouraging. On the flip side, you've got the ANC driving through the employment Equity Amendment uh, Act. It's been passed by the National Assembly. It's now sitting with the Council of Provinces. We aim to petition the president not to sign it because we believe it is unconstitutional. So when we do that, we hope you all sign on. Um, basically, what it says is uh, that the minister can set quotas for every for private businesses uh, not doing business with the government. Uh, just every private business uh, will have to meet these quotas uh, or pay a fine in the millions or, or, or like 20% of revenue or something or jail time. It is, it is a, an egregious, it's, it's an amazingly aggressive extension um, of the cookie cutter quota system uh, that, that uh, has well, helped a creamy elite and that has not helped ordinary South Africans. Uh, and we hope to defeat that, but it kind of gives you a sense of, of, of the state of play between now and 2024 or maybe 2029, which is that we more and more South Africans are becoming aware of, I think the fact that we, we have a we have legacy problems, but we've got a, a suite of problems on top of that, which require a, a new set of solutions and, and, and a kind of, uh, a citizenship that starts to seriously transcend the, the, the old divides and, and confront the new divides of, of crony capitalism, which involves big companies or, or big business, some big business and the state, uh, working hand in glove, uh, to, to, to milk the cream from the top, uh, and, and ordinary South Africans yeah. that are getting left behind. And at the same time, you've got an increasingly desperate state. Uh, which is losing power, losing popularity, and therefore is incentivized to just get more and more aggressive uh, because the best way, if you've lost popularity, to stay in power is basically to undermine democracy, is to postpone elections, is to have a command council in charge, is to amend the All constitution right. through the so, front door, so, the back door, and so on. Just to just to bring us back to something here, and I, I, you've helped create a segue here. I mean, it seems that always the you know small businesses and, and private ownership is always going to be in the sights of both big corporations and the government, and it seems like they're always the victim. And I, I don't think that's people feel, feeling sorry for themselves. They're making it increasingly difficult for ordinary South Africans to do business, to trade with each other, to be able to buy and sell services, goods, whatever it might be. And that is unnecessary. It's, make, it's putting an unnecessary strain on an economy that already can't handle it. And a, a case in point is... What Julius was doing uh, just yesterday, I heard he was going to restaurants in Midrand, which, of course, is probably what he does every day. But this time he went because probably he's sick of being served by hardworking Malawians, Zimbabweans, Mozambicans. I know this is something that annoys you, Pumi, when it comes to people like Herman Mashaba, but the same must count for Julius here. Why are you targeting, first of all, immigrants who are desperate, who are very often people who are economic migrants who've come from across the border legally or illegally. And we know the position here. I'm not in favor of illegal immigration. I don't think anybody is by and large. But even if you were completely opposed to that, this is a kind of victimization. And to me, it's not about illegal immigrants or about restaurants or about small businesses. To me, it's about using these guys as a scapegoat to try and get votes out of angry, disengaged, 
um, annoyed and disenfranchised South Africans. And I don't know that that's fair to put up these guys as a scapegoat. This is what Hitler did with the Jews. <laughs> I, 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 I yes, to yes, you go first, Gabriel, you're our guest. Okay, th- thank you. I I do think that something like that must be right. Um, in particular, when you when you look at how the EFF has um, talked about how Malema in particular has spoken about um, uh, uh, citizenship, residency, and African continent, uh, he said. I remember this quite clearly. He said last year uh, that he will never criticize. Uh, black people that happen to be foreigners because the borders in Africa are a colonial construct uh, that were designed for d- d- divide and conquer purposes. And, uh, and, and he is for, for black solidarity. And so we must never alienate or chastise or discriminate against or, or criticize even, uh, 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 black foreigners who come into South Africa. He said even more emphatically that if he ever does such a thing, <laughs> Then he sh- then he should be uh, removed by his own party. Uh, uh, he he should be taken out because that would be a, 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 an abandonment of the fundamental values of the EFF of race solidarity. Okay, now what's happened? The EFF has seen its polls. It's seen it's not doing so well. Uh, its growth prospects have somewhat plateaued. Uh, it's seeing that uh, Action SA has a sterner line. I think. Uh, I think there's daylight between what Action SA has said in terms of policy and what the EFF is doing in terms of harassment, in in my view, harassment. Um, uh, uh, the IFP has been putting out statements also trying to say uh, uh, that we need to address our borders, we need to get rid of illegal immigrants and so on. So they're seeing that there's a new competition in that space uh, for, for, for political uh, sucker, and they've moved in. Um, in the way that they have. Now, my final comment is going to be this. When you make stark uh, comparisons, as you have, Gareth, it's important to look at the EFF in context. And their context is that Malema tweeted attack. And the result, as far as I can tell, is that uh, pharmacies, places of medicine, uh, were, were, were badly, badly damaged. Some even set on fire. Uh, there has been uh, several instances in in which uh, Malema has called for um, uh, uh, basically for land invasion or for violence. And we have seen, I have attended, and uh, the nation is very aware of many EFF protests that have destroyed public property uh, where people have been harassed, maybe even sometimes harmed. So this, it would be very different if the, if the, uh, if the leader of the EFF did not have such a track record. If he was like a goody two shoes who was saying, we're going to go around and we're just going to shun people. We're going to ask for them for, them for the details and they don't have it to give it to us. But if they do, we'll put it on a list of like, these are the restaurants that hire locals and these are the restaurants that hire foreigners. I'd be uncomfortable with that, but I would understand it in a very different way to the EFF, the party of chaos, um, uh, going out and trying to demand as if it has the authority right. of the police or the department. Um, of Labor, I, I, uh, I can see you want to climb in. Well, we, we, we have to say it, that Julius Malema has crossed over from being a political menace, him and his red berries, that's what they call themselves, ne? or red overalls, whatever. They have crossed mm-hmm. over from being a menace, a political menace, to being a full-on bully organization. They are bullies. 
And and what we see is we see our government's failure to police a bad situation. So when Julius Malema and his cronies attacked clicks stores across the country, there should have been a very severe response to that activity and that action. Then you would not have a Julius Malema who is now so emboldened to take his political play and just downright terrorize and bully business owners. And because of what happened at Clicks, even though also last year, was it last year or the year before, there was a court order saying that if Julius Malema and the EFF want to be an organization that stands up and fights for the rights of workers, then they must go and register themselves as a union and become a union and unionize and get those employees to come to them in their capacity as a union. But that's not who they are. You know, so political oversight. He's a parliamentarian and there is some level of political oversight that he has. But that political oversight also happens within the constructs of the law. You don't just get to wake up Julius yeah. Malema and suddenly this restaurant that you've been patronizing for, according to the owner, 15 years. Now you're going to you know, show up with your people and threaten them with all sorts of things. And I saw the video Outrageous. that they posted, the, the EFF posted on their face, Facebook and uh, Twitter site, where even just the body language and the words coming out of Julius Malema's mouth is, if you take this arrogant stance, <laughs> then you are going to cause trouble for yourself. We are not yet fighting. And I'm just mm. like, that is bullshit. And we actually have to stand up to bullies. We all know what happens in the schoolyard with right. bullies, and they have to be stood up to by South right. Africans. Well, uh, I couldn't agree with either of you more, and I'm really pleased to say that I haven't seen you two agreeing like this before. I hope that next time we get you on, you'll disagree some more. People like that a bit more than uh, than hearing you just agree with each other and nod each other's heads. Anyway, listen, Pumi, thank you very much. Gabriel, always good to see both of you, and we will catch up next week in the Burning Platform for yet another discussion of all the things. There was a whole list of stuff I still wanted to go through with, with you, Gabriel, and with you, Pumi. But luckily for us, Athel dropped out today, so we'll try and get him again for future episodes. Episode. But if he was here, I don't think uh, we would have had as much of an interesting conversation between you two as we did. So thank you both very much. That is The Burning Platform for this morning. CliffCentral.com. We will see you tomorrow at 6 a.m. Cheers. Bye-bye.